Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Ethan Warren, the author of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, a director's cut series publication um if you enjoy the episode please remember to like and subscribe leave a review if you can you can follow me on twitter at dr john t d r j o n t y but before you do any of that please enjoy the conversation like to talk about the fact that the first time I saw one of his movies I really really hated it um, I saw Punch Drunk Love in the theater I was 16 years old and it just upset me so profoundly because that's a very sort of aggressive movie in a lot of ways um, and particularly when you're 16 and you haven't really broadened hadn't broadened my own horizons yet um, I just found it such uh, an alienating experience that over time I wanted to keep going back to and keep trying to understand. Mm. And that ended up being the way I felt about a lot of his movies. You know, you, you want to keep going back to the master and trying to understand it and trying to, you know, there's, there's so many surface level pleasures, but there's also so many enigmas and mysteries to it that it's, it's more, more often than not, his movies draw me back to keep trying to get new things out of them. Were you expecting like an Adam Sandler comedy when you went to see it the first time? 
Yeah, I mean, the the reviews said it's an Adam Sandler movie for grownups. And when you're 16 years old, that's a very flattering concept. It's, oh, you know, there's something that I'm familiar with, but it's going to make me feel like a grownup. And I don't know what I was expecting, maybe something more like Spanglish, but it's not what I got. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or the wedding singer, but with a little bit of darker sure, edge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I actually thought, thought I remember seeing The Wedding Singer being the first Adam Sandler film I ever saw. I saw it at the cinema, and I, uh, of course, I, I was in Britain at the time. When we see people like Adam Sandler or um, you know Chevy Chase or uh, all those uh, Bill Murray, we just see them. They're they're just in Ghostbusters. They're not, or they're just in Fletch. That's the first time we've ever sure. seen them. Uh, so when I saw Adam Sandler in Wedding Singer, I was like, "This is he's really good. This is a great sort of." Um, I, I, I need to rewatch that film because I would never sort of think, now yeah. nowadays I'd never go towards an Adam Sandler comedy, but that film really I, I thought it was great. I think that's one of the special ones. Yeah. Were you already into film at that point? Were you a, a big sort of filmy nerd, or how? Or, or, or this is a word that I was thinking of as I was reading your book, um, film bro, because that seems to be the the term of abuse. You know, I think. I was just at that age kind of starting to, I remember getting my head around the idea that like directors can have a personal stamp and a personal vision. Um, I remember seeing the Royal Tenenbaums, uh, you know, a year or two earlier and just being like, wow. So like this has a style to it that clearly comes from one human being's mind. And it's so funny to think now like that, that was a revelation that movies were not just sort of assembly line produced. And so just, the concept of an auteur, I think, really excited me at that time. And I, you know, I was I was definitely drawn to things like The Usual Suspects and Fight Club were were really hot back then, which I think are are sort of film bro-y movies a little bit. But I was not particularly sophisticated by any means. Um, I just was was figuring out that movies were something that that could be studied and understood as opposed to just watched. Did you study film academically? I only took one uh, course in film theory my whole college experience, at least. Um, mm. And I, I studied uh, film production. I went and took a four-week course um, in how to make movies uh, when I was in college. And then I, I just had one class called Godard and European Film. That was all that was offered in my, my school. And so every week you watched one Godard movie and paired it with one movie by somebody else and saw how they were in conversation. So starting with, I don't remember what the first Godard movie was, maybe just Breathless, um, paired with Rebel Without a Cause, or, or Weekend paired with, oh boy, that might have been Beware a Holy Horror or something like that, the Fassbender movie. It was, that was a really, <laughs> I don't know why Godard was the one that was held up as the one that everything else bounces off of, but that was that was a lot of fun. But when do you start sort of writing about film then? When do you start becoming uh, someone who's sort of like thinking, I've got opinions, <laughs> I've got opinions that everyone else deserves to hear? Yeah. Um, well, I, um, my my degree, my uh, master's is in creative writing. So right. I went and, and got a degree in fiction and thought, well, I'm going to write short stories and novels. And I wrote for my thesis a, a novel that is just sitting in a drawer that truly nobody should ever ask me to read. Um, and I just felt this sort of desire to do something else with it that was not fiction and not not cre you know creative nonfiction, um, not journalism in the traditional sense. And at the same time, I just had this abiding love of film and I loved reading. Um, 
about film. I was, I remember, uh, I was an intern for a, a documentary production company in Connecticut, uh, after grad school. And I, uh, would just sit there pretending I was doing my work, but just reading the dissolve, just plunging through <laughs> the archives there. And, you know, the dissolve, that was, that was an activator for me. I just loved how they wrote about things and how they came at things. And, and I ended up in a Facebook group that was all, once the dissolve shut down, there was a Facebook group that started up that was all former readers of the dissolve. And they over there started resurrecting some of the old columns. Mm. And so we, we did, um, they had the, the forgot busters column at the dissolve. And so we, in the Facebook group started doing our own forgot busters columns. I wrote about the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings movie for them. Um, and just for each other, for our own entertainment, we were just posted in the group. Um, and from there, somebody shared uh, Brightwall Dark Room, which was a site that I uh, ended up writing for and as an editor for for about six years. Um, and what Brightwall Dark Room does that is so, I think, special and and unique is the sort of going going long and going formally, sort of as formally loose as you feel like going, writing about a movie, but writing about how it impacts you, you know, doing a personal angle or doing a, I mean, at the beginning of Brightwall Darkroom, they were doing poetry and and creative nonfiction and things like that. It's now settled more into an essay mold, but th there were no rules to how you felt like writing about it. And that really attracted me as somebody who had a degree in, in creative writing. I'm, I'm so curious about your novel now. <laughs> Don't be. So you're writing for uh, Darkroom Brightwall. And, uh, and, and how does that, uh, and, and you're, you said you were working for this documentary filmmaker. Are you actually trying to make films at this point yourself as well? I actually wrote and directed a movie, uh, that came out in 2018, um, that is called West of Her, uh, it came out. It's, it's, uh, went straight to VOD, but is now, um, on Amazon prime, I think on currently on Paramount plus we got distributed through Gravitas Ventures. And that was, was sort of a lifelong dream that I ended up deciding was not for me. I, it just was something that I, I had to do to feel what that was like. And and I thought it was going to be my life and then eventually realized, no, I just don't have the temperament to direct movies. Um, it's it's not, not what I'm built for. In, in what way? So in what way? I mean, you need to be, I think it was Francis Ford Coppola said that directing is just making decisions all day long. When you have... A group of, I mean, we had a skeleton crew, so it was a handful of people, but looking to me to make decisions all day long, every single person on that shoot had more experience making movies than I did, which is sort of ideal when you're a director to surround yourself with competent people who know how to do their jobs and, and can just do it almost independently. But I didn't have, I, I went to film school for four weeks and I just didn't have the sort of ability to visualize it in my head and turn that into instruction the way that that a director needs to i think have a certain degree of snap decisions knowing what they're doing and and type a personality for lack of a better term mm. i mean that's that that is i mean that skill as well when people talk about vision i find it interesting i i kind of wonder what that looks like if you know what i mean i was reading about uh, a bunch of there's there's a sort of quite a large proportion of people who have something called, uh, I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, a a, a fantasia, a, a fantasia, a fantasia. I think it is, 
Yeah. And it, it's the inability to visualize things in your head. If you say, you know, red yep. triangle, everybody thinks of a red triangle, except for like 0.4% of the population or whatever who, who go, right. how do I? They get the concept. They don't see a red triangle in their head. And I, yeah. I, I wonder if there's a version of that in terms of directing films where you, you know, um, you're just dealing in ideas rather than like a vision in a in a more literal sense. Well, you need to know, you know, how putting this light over here impacts the entire mood of the scene, and that's something that's hard to learn on the go, uh, right. which is what we were doing. I mean, this this was a road movie, and so we were. Uh, driving every day stopping and filming and we just didn't have the time there was no such thing as reshoots uh because we just needed to be constantly on the move and, and shooting as we went and it was a it was a hell of a learning curve i know mm. that so not a great experience not a happy experience that one well it, it was a dream come true but it was a real stressful experience and mm. then you know i i settled down in the suburbs and had kids and that's the other thing is is you know that was not necessarily compatible with going out and making movies. It is for some people. It is for Paul Thomas Anderson, but it's not for me. Does it? Does that experience then? Uh, well, it must do. How does that experience alter the way you look at other people's films? Well, it it has made me both more generous to other people and a little more critical. I think it it definitely helped me understand how movies are put together in a way that I would not have been able to come in to my writing uh, life, understanding literally what it takes to make a movie. Um, but it also made me a little more judgmental of movies that aren't put together with a lot of of care um, because it is such a privilege to get to do that. And it is so difficult and requires so many people's time and effort that, you know, why would it not be the best that it could be? And yeah, and yeah, I mean, I was reading Richard Brody's uh, biography of Goddard uh, earlier this, this over the weekend, and Goddard was someone who was like, um, you know, constantly giving the most vague directions in terms of like his. He would he would tell he would tell his cameraman, um, "I don't want to see the legs." And that was his way of saying, "Okay, do a mid shot," you know. But he wouldn't. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? He'd give these really, um, and he was very, very um, uh, imp spontaneous and improvisatory, you know. But but yeah, there there is a, I guess the thing I always see is a sort of a certain obstinate force of character that that is pushed through somehow. It's 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 something I discovered about myself. I I do not have the force of of character to to keep pushing movies up up the hill because it right. is. I mean, it's it's as as I said during it was a long long post production. You're either pushing a rock up the hill or you're pushing it on a flat surface under the best of circumstances. And so, how do you come come to this book then? In terms of what's your what what's the genesis of the book itself? Well, I just after writing essays every month for a number of years, I just sort of got hungry to take on something bigger. And I um, was actually, I was pitching another book around. Um, I, I wanted to write a book about the Brian De Palma movie, Phantom of the Paradise. Do you know that one? Yes, yes, absolutely. There is, there is a book's worth of material in that movie. Mm. And Columbia University Press had a series called Cultographies. that was all about cult movies. And so I pitched for that and they had just shut that series down and I, but managed to get my foot in the door with the editor there, um, there's a, a lovely man named Ryan Grundyke, And he took a look at, 
at some of my other writing and said, well, if you ever want to pitch one of our other series, we have this series called Director's Cuts, which are book length looks at one director, the cinema of X director. Um, I have on my shelf the cinema of Werner Herzog, Todd Haynes, uh, Steven Spielberg, James Cameron. If and, and I, I took a look at the list and I was sort of shocked that Paul Thomas Anderson wasn't already on there. And so I said, well, hey, I have a lot of interest in this guy. Would you be interested in, in me writing up a proposal? And they were very interested. I, I love the way you just described how you came to Paul Thomas Anderson initially as a sort of like um, a, a filmmaker who you had nagging doubts with or problems with, or there was some. It, it, there was always a discussion that you that, that you were having, rather than that you were coming and just going, "Okay, this guy's blowing me away, and I'm you know I'm up for it all." And that was consistent throughout his filmography. It kind of it depends on the movie, like something like Boogie Nights. You can really come to that and just and just enjoy the pleasures of it without needing to interrogate it all that much. Um, but then you you move over to Magnolia, the next movie, and that's a movie that it's you have to wrestle with a little bit. Um, or Inherent Vice, maybe you know one of the movies that requires more wrestling with it than just about anything else made this century, at least by a major studio. There Will Be Blood is one that I, I sort of, it splits the difference. I, mm. I found it extremely accessible on the first go, but still it has this ambiguous tone I think that's that's something that really strikes me with him is is the mixture of sort of austerity and jocularity, maybe for lack of a better word. Um, you know, there will be blood is is this grand epic on a biblical scale where a character uses the term brother from another mother. And it's just these bizarre little spasms of humor or, you know, uh, in the master, the little uh, when Philip Seymour Hoffman gets so frustrated that he all of a sudden shrieks pig fuck the vomit in in uh phantom thread it's these little these little spasms of gross out humor or juvenilia that go up against the very seriousness of purpose i just find that so fascinating yeah you but you point out the uh something i i it had never occurred to me and then when it when i see it it's it's right in front of my face which is uh Reynolds woodcock as a name right which is just yeah. like it's like um of course of course that's hilarious as a as an idea as a to, to have them saying it and that's the sort of dry literally dry joke that goes uh yeah runs through the film the mother from another, the brother from another mother. I I I don't recall that line. What at what point's that line? In there will be blood. It's when uh, Daniel's half brother or the con artist who is claiming to be his half brother arrives. He uh -huh. says, "Are you Daniel Plainview? I'm your brother from another mother," and it it's played off as a natural line of dialogue. But you know, you can't help but hear that as. The, the colloquialism that we know it as. Yeah, yeah, Drake and Josh. <laughs> the way you divide up the films as well is interesting because you're looking at them in terms of what you call the thesis films and the antithesis films. Could you just explain to the listeners who maybe not haven't had an opportunity to read your book yet what you mean by that division? So yeah, I, I, he's made nine movies so far and I split them into chunks of three. So I call the first chunk which is hard eight sydney if you want to call it by his preferred title uh boogie nights in magnolia i call the thesis films uh which are movies where i feel that he was very assertively declaring this is what a paul thomas anderson movie is this is what they feel like 
And then the next three, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood in the Master, I refer to as the antithesis films because I feel that those are movies that are really acting in direct opposition to the three that come before. That they are, he he has said himself that he got sick of his own voice at various points in his career and needed a sort of a gear shift. Uh, and so that is one. And then, then the last three movies I call the synthesis movies, um, Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread, Licorice Pizza, because they are movies that I think are relatively unconcerned with, I think, as I say in the book, relatively unconcerned with the stakes of their own existence. So he, with those first three movies, came out of the gate saying these are movies that, well, Hard Eight is a little bit its own thing, but ensemble movies, movies of grand operatic soliloquy characters saying what they mean all the time doing cocaine and yelling uh ensemble things i think i said and and um things with really clear relationships to their influences and movies that are more about quoting their influences than kind of absorbing and repurposing them and then with punch drunk love there's this very clear dividing line where he as he has said in interviews he he broke down his whole way of working and then rebuilt it. Uh, so suddenly he was now working with much smaller crews. He was telling stories about single protagonists. Um, those next three movies, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood and the Master, are movies about single protagonists who are extremely repressed as opposed to stories of ensembles who are extremely expressive. And you don't often see somebody with as clear a dividing line in their filmography as you do between Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love. And it just, it, it begs to be analyzed. And then the challenge was to try and come up with what the uniting force with the, what I call the synthesis movies is. And I now see those as movies that are a bit in response to the three that came before in that if those are, if the, the antithesis movies are movies about repressed characters, the three that come next are movies that are more, relaxed in certain ways um the you, you, you go from the master of this story of the clenched jawed uh joaquin phoenix character to the next movie is a much more loose and relaxed joaquin phoenix character you go from the brutal daniel day lewis character to the more uh genteel daniel day lewis character and, and you go from the uh anxious surreal valley san fernando valley of punch drunk love into the more ecstatic, um, wide open valley of licorice pizza. I think they're movies that are just a little bit less stressed out. <laughs> and I think that's, that's admirable. Yeah. There's a sort of maturity there as well of someone who is perhaps doing a little less cocaine and yeah, uh... smoking a little more weed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting that a lot of his films have at their heart a sort of form of drug use, even the Phantom Fred with the mushrooms and, you know, this idea yeah. that you will literally intoxicate yourself in order to bring about some sort of life change and some sort of revelation. Yeah, there's, there's a quote that I <laughs> wish I had found a way to work into the book where um, in, in Punch Drunk Love, there are the uh, abstract colors that punctuate certain transitions. Uh, the screen will just be overtaken by uh, blues and pinks and swirling blobs of color. And, and somebody asked him, what were those inspired by? And he answered, marijuana. In a way, I think I've been um, a, a lover of Paul Thomas Anderson's work 
in a way that's kind of not been particularly critical. I don't know if I've written much about him. I think I've maybe I reviewed the master certainly. I'm not sure if I've I've written much about him elsewhere. But he's just definitely someone who, who I've just sort of like taken in and enjoyed. And I found it was it was really interesting um reading uh, your your book. It, it made me really think about some of the some of the stuff a, a lot more deeply and a lot more in terms of politics. So for instance, you're very good on um uh, bringing out the problems in terms of his relationship to race, for instance, which I uh, which is something I have to confess. Aside from that uh, licorice pizza sort of Japanese joke, let's call it generously, I I hadn't really much thought about. Yeah, well, it's something that really uh, came up most significantly with Magnolia, where people pointed out that he pitched that really as this definitive vision of the San Fernando Valley. And he did not say, this is my experience of the valley. He said, this is what the valley is like if you were to go there. And there are very few significant characters who are not white. And the ones that are not white are there to serve the white characters or to be, uh, as as more than one person has pointed out, you have the, the game show uh, where it's three white kids intellectually beating up on three non-white. I think they are all non-white um, competitors. Um, and he got pushed back on on that and he really did not have a, an ability to say, well, it's my experience. I am showing mm-hmm. my uh, environs. He he just kept pushing back and saying, no, this is what it's like in the Valley. And you can't really say that of the San Fernando Valley. Um, and and so the way I see it is since then, he has really retreated to these, these period stories where there is less onus on him to do a realistic quote-unquote um ethnographic survey of you know there will be blood this this story set in the early 20th century oil fields you're not going to get too much pushback from the casual viewer on the uh, demographic makeup of your ensemble or if you even do um inherent vice that is so much a farce that you have the plausible deniability of you know sure the only black character is a black panther and the only asian character is a prostitute um you know well it's all just jokes mm. and then licorice pizza it it the magnolia thing came back around again where it's you know why are there so so few non-white people even making up the frame you know let alone having having lines of dialogue it's it is going to be interesting to see how he he keeps pushing forward because it's there are fewer and fewer uh, people who are willing to kind of let him skate by on that. Mm, and now his next movie might be, uh, lead. you know, there's the rumor that Denzel Washington will lead his next thing and it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Right, absolutely. I, I remember uh, Phantom Fred when that first came out, I watched it in London and if, uh, quite a few friends of mine were saying, you know, um, how does Alma not, how is, is nobody noticing that Alma's got this strong European accent, this strong non-British European accent, and this is happening just after the war, and people would be saying, where are you from? What are you doing? And it seems to be like, okay, I don't know. There's a certain, it's almost like a stylistic choice that I'm not going to sully my vision with with, with this sort of consideration, you know? Um, 
obviously sully my vision it means you're 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 making that decision on I'm projecting something onto the PTA that you might not actually be feeling but that that's sort of how it comes When you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you find the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Across to me. Yeah, well, it's, I think he likes to tell stories that are sort of mythic and broad strokes rather than worrying about the specifics. That's that's a really um, salient one. Uh Vicky Creeps had to bring a lot of personal subtext to Alma's relationship to World War II. And she has spoken in interviews about this whole subtext, whereas Anderson didn't even decide what country she was from. He just said she was from over there. I think that was right. what he said in, in his interview for the uh, the Academy Conversation series. So what matters is that she is not from London. That's a very mythic concept. It's a fairy tale rather than the the ethnographic and and you know global geopolitical realities that i don't know you know i think sully his vision is a perfectly appropriate way to say it i mean i was thinking about that also in terms of sex because um you, there's a there's a, a good a great chapter where you talk about the screenwriting and how and you compare the drafts of the screenplay to 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 what finally makes it into the the finished film either stuff that wasn't filmed or scenes that were filmed and then cut out and there's one of daniel plainview in there will be blood where he uh sort of commits you, you quite rightly point out that it's ambiguous if it, he commits cunnilingus or commits a sexual act or not in a, in an alleyway and um I can kind of, again, see why that would take away from his sort of more mythic, enigmatic character if you just think, oh, he just can't get it up. You know, that's that's his problem, you know? Right, yeah. And, and so it's, yeah, his, Daniel Plainview's impotence is, uh, is uh, implied in the finished movie rather than explicit as it is in the screenplay. And so it's, it's all displaced onto the... Um, as plenty of people have pointed out, the almost sort of sexual connotations of the oil extraction process itself is stands in for his inability to get it up. I think there must be, because uh, thinking about his career as I was reading your book as well, I, you can't help but think about postmodernism as a uh, sort of post-war, late 20th century impulse, uh, I, I guess. It, I, it feels like to me like he is a very transitional filmmaker that he starts off in a very postmodern similar to Tarantino to some extent as well where everything is quoted you you can see the you can see the Altman you can see the the various and you you have a great chapter where you talk about his debt to Dem Jonathan Demi to Robert Downey senior um to Kubrick 
and 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 yet as he goes on it feels like that um postmodernism and that verve is settling into something which is more akin to sort of romantic irony to something which is is at once still not taking itself totally seriously but uh, but allows for the possibility of being taken seriously much more does that does that make any sense it does it's people have have described his first three movies as like movies about movies and that from there it's i think romantic irony is is a very appropriate way of of putting it um romantic capital r romanticism Uh, yeah Um, exactly yeah yeah it's the the movies are still self-aware they are still movies that he never wants you to completely sink into the experience of watching his movie there's always formally stuff that that pulls you out a little bit in what I think is a productive way. Um, I describe it in the book as um, provocative versus evocative um, alienation effects. So um, in those early movies, there's these formal choices that are very alienating. And I think they they push you out of the movie a little bit um, in, a, in a way that I think is, is comparable to Tarantino, um, whose movies are also movies about other movies in a way that is very appealing to a lot of people and often appealing to me. Um, And later the movies, the, the alienation effects in something like inherent vice, it's less reminding you of other movies and more just sort of shaking up your ability to perceive this movie in a way that draws you closer to the stoned perspective of the central character. I think what one thing Inherent Vice sort of lacked for me on the first viewing, I watched it. I mean, I'm a huge Thomas Pynchon fan um uh I, I love the book i love gravity's rainbow and and v and I've, I've read everything except mason dixon for some reason i'm not sure why i've got it downstairs but and, and for some reason it, what i feel in retrospect i didn't feel this at the time that i was watching it and i've since i've since rewatched it and enjoyed it much more but in retrospect it doesn't have those standout cinematic moments like for instance you know the drilling for oil in there will be blood or in licorice pizza the the whole scene with the moving truck which is um which is just awesomely cinematic it's just so such a a wonderful thing that couldn't be your stage play would would wouldn't work in a novel but but it, on screen it's just pure cinema and i i think inherent vice sort of kind of lacks that in a way but the way what you talked about in the book where you describe it as being influenced by police squad that that makes me really want to watch it again <laughs> makes me want to go back and and check that out because of course yeah the, the, it's in the trailer there's a pratfall that uh yeah. is is excellent you know yeah it's it's he was um very inspired by those zucker abrams zucker comedies and it's more, I think, about just the the density of visual information that he sticks into the movie. It's there's there's some pratfalls and there's some slapstick, but it's it's more just how he packs the frame, which is his attempt to get at the Pynchon-esque density of uh, language games um, that you can't you can't evoke Pynchon's writing uh, by doing anything except I think he says it just needs to be packed with stuff and a lot of fun. And of course, he uses a voiceover in that, which feels very, I mean, that always feels like a filmmaker sort of maybe losing their nerve a little bit when it comes to literary adaptation. Not, I mean, voiceovers have been done excellently by movies, but when it comes to literary adaptation, there's always a sense of like, okay, you, you, you know, the words here they are, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, and it's, it's just the, 
I think it, he must have just thought it would be a shame to make a pension movie and lose the pros. And mm. and what's really interesting about that is is um, that is it's such a nostalgic story. It's such an elegiac story, and it's written in the voice of Thomas Pynchon, who is writing about his own environs. That's, you know, Gordita Beach is Manhattan Beach at the time that he was living there. Mm. And he takes that language and he puts it in the mouth of not an older man, but a young woman, which is, you know, a really interesting, exciting choice, I think. I always think of Pynchon as someone who's great at sentences. I think that's one of the, um, it's that, I don't know if it's Nabokov's effect on American literature, but, you know, you guys write brilliant sentences. Well, there's the idea of the the sentence writer versus the paragraph writer, and he's definitely a sentence writer. When you finished working on the book, was it, what was the, the film that you sort of most had sort of come to reassess in the process of viewing multiple times and, and, and thinking of uh, thinking of the book, uh, of the films together? I think probably the bookend ones, Hard Eight and uh, Phantom Thread, because I wrote this entire book without licorice pizza existing and then had to, at the last minute, rewrite the entire book to absorb licorice pizza into it um, because it came out just as I was finishing my first draft. God damn Um, you. God damn you, Anderson. (laughs) I know. I know. And sidebar, it's happening again. It's I'm I'm writing a book on Bob Dylan now, right? And James Mangold has just gone in or is is heading into pre-production on his Bob Dylan book. It's gonna happen again. I don't know what I'm gonna do with Timothy Chalamet. With Timothy, he's gonna be doing his own singing. That's gonna be interesting. Uh, uh, can't, we can't get into that. So Heart Eight was a movie that I just didn't have the interest in um, sort of diving below the surface of because it's it's kind of it's the one that I think just about everybody is least interested in. It's the mm. least Paul Thomas Anderson-y of his movies. And it's also a fairly enigmatic movie. And so it's one that it took a while to kind of open itself up and show me what it was doing. And then I, I came to have a real fondness for it. And then Phantom Thread, I came to appreciate most by reading the screenplay. The screenplays for all of his movies except Licorice Pizza are pretty readily available either in PDF or uh, for Phantom Thread and The Master I had to find on eBay the um, the four-year consideration published uh, paperback versions that they sent around. And with Phantom Thread, you realize just how much at this point he is writing in and then cutting out. That is a movie that has so much that is explicit in the screenplay and he took out and left to implication. Uh, so, you know, on on the page, Alma is talking and talking and talking about what she feels and why she feels that way. And she's talking about her jealousy of her cool sister and how all she's ever wanted to do is be a wife and a mother. And that gets taken out, but it's still there. Or or Reynolds Woodcock talking about his military service. He is very explicitly a combat veteran in in the screenplay. And then you take that out, but still there's sort of the the whiff of it as an implication. I found that really fascinating. Mm. So that was very rewarding. You can sort of imagine him as someone recovering from PTSD and and exactly the, the yeah. whole of the house is based on his routine, his diet, everything is based on I don't want any more chaos in my life, you know. Totally. You know, li- literally conflict averse. Um yeah. yeah that doesn't that, have time for confrontation. It would well, no, not over breakfast. God, I love that film. That's such a that's I mean, one of the th- influences that because you mentioned it in terms of Hitchcock and in terms of Rebecca, which I think was a lot quite a few people coming out with at the time. 
it also reminds me a lot of James Ivory, who I sort of think is kind of underrated as a director. I think he sort of gets a little bit too much dismissed as a prestige sort of, I don't know, Bridgerton Proto Bridgerton, sort of pro, proto Downton Abbey, sort of thing, and and he yeah. isn't. He's really not that, you know. He's Maurice is amazing that film, and um, you know, it came out in the middle of the AIDS crisis, and it was a film about a, a gay guy who, you know, which didn't have an unhappy ending. You know, it was uh, kind of quite quite revolutionary in its own way. Sorry, digression, <laughs> digression. But I think I, no, I, it's, I, I, totally relevant. Yeah, I, I think Phantom Fred has that. You know, it has that ivory feel to it. Also, of sort of emotional constipation of repression yeah. coming out in really interestingly, in un- interesting other ways. Well, quite literally, the uh, the repression comes out in interesting ways in newspaper lined bathrooms, as you see them at the end. Again, a point that you you made that I thought is, is that I mean, I remember them being in the bathroom. I don't remember the newspaper, and then that the, the the implications of that are are quite gross. Yep. And very funny. In terms of uh, the the future, in terms of looking towards where um, Paul Thomas Anderson is going, I mean he he has been linked to to people like Tarantino. Um, uh, I remember when I saw you know Boogie Nights, I was thinking of certain scenes very much from a Tarantino point of view. Um, also, sort of thinking of it as a sort of ref, riffing on Pulp Fiction to some degree as well. He he's also sort of had this contentious sort of relationship with the press in terms of you know the f- infamous sort of David Fincher comment that he he made right. at the Wake yeah. Fight Club. Um, it's interesting that for, again, for the listener, he said, "I I wish David Fincher testicular cancer for all of his jokes about it. I wish him testicular fucking cancer." Right, absolutely. And you make the point that his father had uh, had recently passed from cancer, so it was right. Yeah. It, it it wasn't uh, as uh, gratuitous as, as it might seem, although at the same time it kind of crossed a line. It's it's pretty rough, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I saw. I'm I'm thinking of this. The reason I was sort of bringing up Quentin Tarantino again is is you know we've got this idea that he's going to sunset his career. That he's like the last film I'm going to do is the next one. I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson is going to do that. I certainly hope he isn't. I can see him kind of changing even more. If how, how do you view it? How do you sort of look forward to that? I think it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, since I do have this urge to block his career into these phases, uh, ostensibly that would mean that he's moving into a new phase in my personal conception of it. And so it'll be really interesting. I mean, in a lot of ways, Licorice Pizza is a family man movie. Um, he made that movie like so many of the incidental characters who are bustling around the edges of that are family friends or his kids' friends. And so what I think is going to be interesting is to see if he sort of keeps tightening his circle. Um, you know, famously, he he hasn't had a director of photography on his last couple of movies the camera crew and he just worked collectively as right. as a pseudo dp and so to see if he keeps getting smaller and smaller and working with the people that are already around him that he knows and loves or if he is going to broaden again i'm really curious about that um i'm curious if he'll ever make a movie set in the present again he hasn't made a movie set in the present day since punch drunk love which now by now is set 
21 years ago. And he seems to have absolutely no interest in telling stories set in the present. He's, he's been pretty explicit about that. Um, he said in interviews around uh, licorice pizza that the modern world is a cannonball that is dragging us all down. I'd love to see him wrestle with that. I wish he would. There's so much there that seems to align with so many of his interests, um, but he just would rather look backwards. And and God bless him. I mean, who is making period pieces quite like this? But I'm curious. I'm curious what he would do. That's, that's such an interesting... Okay, this could be another digression. Contemporary American filmmakers, kind of... How many of them are, are making films about the present? I'm thinking you know, Tarantino's gone backwards the coen Wes brothers Anderson has not made a movie yet set in the present since around it's it's since uh the darjeeling limited for anderson wes anderson yeah 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 since death proof for tarantino i mean i guess there's a there's an element that you just don't know the present as well in the sense that you know tarantino's present was the was before he was famous and that was in right. the very early 90s so anything after that how can he even look at the present without just seeing it through hotel rooms and, you know, and That's an interesting point. Yeah. I think there's also people don't want to make movies with smartphones in them, which, you know, for better or worse, it seems a little bit silly. I think you could do plenty of interesting things with smartphones. Steven Soderbergh doing plenty of interesting things with the present world. Um, but Anderson has said. That's a very good counterexample. Yeah. Um, I mean, look at Kimmy is a movie that is all about very present day technological concerns and is extremely entertaining. Um, but Anderson has said that that smartphones are and, and YouTube is just stuff that is so anathema to him. He's just disgusted by it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this goes back to the sort of postmodernism into romanticism sort of uh, thing. You know, it's like Tarantino as well in terms of his, you know, I'm not going to use a computer. I'm going to do everything with a pen and a yellow legal pad and everything. It's, uh, you know, it's, you know, walking backwards into the future. You're not, you're not, um, right. you don't want to, I, I mean, there's loads of young filmmakers who are doing it. I don't think it's necessary. It's like, you don't necessarily want to see your dad da dancing at a disco. So, you know, <laughs> stop break dancing, dad. <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't even good when you when it was when it was good. Yeah, God, that's a real. This is this is what's so interesting about the book as well. And one one other thing I wanted to bring up as well was in terms of um, the sort of gender politics that that go through this. And you make the point that there are lots of um, uh, of pairings throughout the the films, which which you um, you know the characters who who reflect each other or they are in conflict. Um, yeah, maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I call them gendered dyads, uh, which well, are are you know rather than pairing. I think he's he's got plenty of romantic pairings, but he's more interested in the pairings of characters who are of the same uh, gender uh, gender identity and who reflect two sides of a whole. So um, looking at, I mean, it's, it's most obvious in there will be blood or the master, these stories of two characters going up against each other, but you see it as well in punch drunk love. That's a romance, but the more, I think interesting, ideologically interesting pairing is, is Barry and Dean mattress man. Um, the sort of meek character versus the more, aggressive and bloviating one and what or you know doc sportello and bigfoot bjornson um what often comes of these pairings though is not that we see that one of them is 
superior to the other, that one mode of gender expression is superior, but that you need to come to some kind of, again, synthesis, um, where Barry has to absorb elements of Dean rather than show that Barry is superior to Dean. Um, or you see at the end of, of, uh, inherent vice, you see, um, doc and Bigfoot quite literally sort of intersect as they start speaking in unison. Um, you see that they have to learn from each other and, and absorb elements of each other to more effectively express their gender expression. Uh, I think that's Cyril and Alma are the more interesting pairing to me, uh, in phantom thread than Reynolds and Alma because mm. they represent some ideological distinction. Yeah, Reynolds is almost and, a, irrelevant in a in a way. Yeah. They seem to be more active characters. Yeah, and and represent these two very distinct modes of femininity, where Cyril mm. is basically a military general, and Alma is the uh, nurturing wife and mother, eventual mm. mother. It it just feels. I feel that there is such a, a wealth of of things to think about with Paul Thomas Anderson in terms of you know every level of his uh, creativity. And the point that you made earlier that he's sort of dealing in these myths as well seems to me, seems to, to, to add depth and richness to his to his movies. Sort of at the very beginning of this conversation sort of make, make, made an offhand uh, reference to, to sort of film bros, which has become an in, um, internet way of sort of kind of dismissing. I mean, this podcast right now would, would be seen as the sort of maybe the nadir or the or the apotheosis of film bro discourse, probably the nadir. How do how many how do you feel about that? How do you there's a sort of gleeful? I remember Fiona Apple recently came out with sort of something about sitting and listening to Quentin Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson talking all night about movies and just being like, oh fuck these guys and. Yep. This was sort of received with such a roar of approval. There was a little bit of me that was just like, "Yeah, but also, I kind of would have wouldn't mind listening to the them, you know, and see what they have to say." Well, I think part of that was that they were so coked out of their minds that what they were saying maybe was not as interesting as it could have been. Um, I mean, I think the term "film bro" it's it's a little bit reductive, but also it it represents people who use film as a replacement for their own intellectual character. And if I see more movies than anybody else, and if I see more esoteric movies than anybody else, then I am by default the most interesting person in the room. And I think the the idea of a film bro is, is an overtalker, somebody who is not interested in the perspective of other people. And so the onus is on you to, not you, <laughs> the onus is on the, <laughs> the theoretical you to uh, see as much as possible, absorb as much as possible, but still be open conversationally to hearing the other perspectives and not just taking your own knowledge as superior because you've seen the most esoteric movies. And me at certain times in my life, me me around circa Godarin European film course, I mean, absolutely thought that I was the most interesting person in the room because I had seen Fassbender movies. Um, okay, brilliant. Ethan, listen, I've got one more question for you, which is uh, I like to ask for a film book recommendation. Well, the writer that I am really continually fascinated by um, has written a book on on Paul Thomas Anderson, and he is a guy named George Tolles, who is uh, based out of Canada. And he, he wrote um, a book. It's just called Paul Thomas Anderson, technically. 
And I think he is a writer of essentially ecstatic poetry about film. Um, he's got a book of essays that I have on the nightstand called, I think it's A House Made of Light, Essays on, on Film. He is a collaborator uh, with Guy Madden. He wrote a lot of uh, Guy Madden's movies or co-wrote them. And I just find the way that he looks at film to be, I don't always agree with a lot of what he says, but the way he pulls in poetry and philosophy and all of that um, is consistently fascinating to me. Uh, and then another writer who has written a book on Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, Adam Naiman, I think is a fascinating writer. Um, have you had him on the show? Yeah, he was on, uh, I think we might have talked about Paul Thomas, but we did talk about Showgirls and we talked about Finch and we talked about a lot of people. Yeah, it's. I, I don't want to, well, I will select one other book of his, which is a, a deep cut. His book on Ben Wheatley mm. um, is is fascinating to me, a, a filmmaker I really love and that, that Adam has really thought very deeply on. Um, I think that book may only be current up to the point of, it might, was it Free Fire, the Ben Wheatley movie? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and he's made plenty since then, but Adam has written about him online. Um, you can't go wrong reading an Adam Naiman book or a George Toll's book. Brilliant. Those are those are two great recommendations. Um, and, and Ethan, you're 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 working on uh, the Bob Dylan book. Will that be Bob Dylan in in cinema? Will be that be a sort of crossover? Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's Bob Dylan as a cinematic figure. So Dylan has been the subject of documentaries. He has been the subject of one very unusual biopic, and now will seemingly be the subject of a probably much more conventional biopic. He has directed movies, co-written movies, starred in movies. He has really, going back to the 60s, been all over the map uh, in terms of film. And you can trace his biography through the movies that he was doing and, and kind of trace the um, industrial history of film through uh, his participation in it. So a lot to talk about there. And I'm just getting started. So it'll be a couple of years before you're reading that one. Excellent. You'll have to come on the on the, the the show and talk about it once it's once it's ready. Absolutely, I'd love to. Sam Peckinpah, I remember throwing knives at Bob Dylan <laughs> during the filming of. I don't know uh, if I've Pat, heard that one. I've, I, I know that he uh, he he uh, stood up during the dailies and uh, urinated on the screening room screen. I know Bob Dylan witnessed that. Quite a time to be around Sam Peckinpah. I think he must have done that with every film because I'm sure I've heard that story about The Getaway as well. So I think he's just, oh, really? he, yeah. he just did another way to the toilet. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just his habit. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Ethan. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.